Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In July, Israel passed its controversial new nation-state law. It says that the right to exercise national self-determination in Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It establishes Hebrew as Israel's official language and downgrades Arabic to a special status. It establishes Jewish settlement as a national value. In a few minutes, we're going to talk with a supporter of Israel's nation-state law. But first, let's talk with two Palestinian citizens of Israel about how they feel about Israel's nation-state law. Around 20% of Israeli citizens are Palestinians. With me is Jafar Farah. He's the founder and director of the Mosawa Center. It's an advocacy center for Arab citizens of Israel. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Also with us is Nabila Espanioli. She's founder and director of Al Tafula. It's a women's center in Nazareth, and she's written and edited several books and articles on social and political issues affecting women and won several awards for her peace activism. Great to meet you, Nabila. Thank you. What is the thing that most bothers you about the nation-state law? Jafar? I think the fact that uh, this law uh, will make it legal uh, to separate in housing, the segregation in housing. You know, imagine that in the U.S. today, somebody called legally, in, and this is a constitutional law, actually, called to separate and to make segregation in housing. So segregation in housing how, is... How does it do that? Because, I mean, Jewish settlement is a national value. Does that do segregation in housing? Yeah, uh, you have to see the practice on the ground. Since the establishment of the State of Israel and today, there is almost 600 Jewish kibbutzim, for example, every Everybody, you know, aware of the this term kibbutzim. Kibbutzim, until now, they don't allow Arabs to be members of the kibbutzim. So since the establishment of the State of Israel, and we were challenging as civil rights movement, this uh, practice by the government uh, in the Supreme Court. Today, the basic laws say that it's legal to separate and to make segregation on housing. And uh, the government even have the obligation to encourage housing solutions only for communities like the Jewish community, while practically the government is also uh, uh, neglect the needs of the Arab community and even practice home demolition against villages and uh, houses of the Arab community. Um, Nabila, is that the worst part? Do you have another worst part of it? First of all, this is a basic law. We don't have an Israel constitution. We have basic laws. And as a basic law that will be impacting all other laws in, inside Israel. So the impact of the national state law is not only the law itself, but the interpretation of each law in that structure, in that context. So if you think about even uh, like we, we have been witnessing one of the courts using already this the uh, the law for compensation uh, of the a Jewish injured person they said that because he's Jew they they should be compensating him uh, more than than any others, and this is already f- a first week in after the the law before the explanation of the law before putting the guidance for the law. This is already used in the in the, in the courts, and this is will be our reality day to day in Israel. What what does the language issue mean? If uh, there's one official language of Israel and then there's a special status for Arabic, well, how does that play out on the ground? On the ground, unfortunately, also today, the Arabic language uh, don't have any uh, practical uh, use 
in the parliament, for example, in a state that usually you say there is two languages, official languages, you expect that the parliament, for example, offers simultaneous translation in the way that Canada can offer simultaneous translation or the way that uh, the Belgium, you know, when you have Flemish and French and uh, Germans in uh, Belgium and you say these are the official languages. So the downgrade of the Arabic language today is preventing services from the Arab community because uh, uh, linguistic services is very important, for example, in the healthcare services. It's very important in any country that you need this language. But more than this, I think this is a piece of law that shows the hostility of the current uh, political majority in Israel toward the language of the region. I think if I would be a Jewish citizen living in the Middle East, I would love to learn Arabic because this is the language of the neighborhood. You know, imagine that you live in uh, Latin American uh, neighborhood and you don't understand the language of the region. So I think the isolation of the Jewish people, uh, they thought when they designed this law about the isolation of the Arab community. But in my eyes, it's the isolation also of the Jewish community from the region, from the Middle East, from the Arab Middle East. And when it comes to the services that we deserve to get in our language, it's downgrade the ability of the Arab community. I will give you, you know, uh, previous challenges. We were challenging the practice in the past. You know, Israel is already declared in basic laws as a Jewish state. So we went to the court and we said Arabic language is official uh, language and you should add street signs. Arabic street signs. So it took the court six, seven years to debate, is it service or identity? How adding Arabic to the street signs will affect the Jewish character of the state? Imagine something that should be a service that you should give to fifth of your community. It became an issue of balances between the Jewish character of the state, and that was before the law. So practically, if we will go today to the court and we'll tell the court, look, you have to give service in Arabic, because you have obligation, they will tell you it's not official language. You know, I met uh, a police officer in uh, my neighborhood who was giving a ticket for a kid 13 and a half years old. And the kid didn't understand what the Jewish police officer was telling him. And I start to translate between them. And at a certain point, I told, you know, he wanted to give him a ticket for 1,000 shekel, imagine. And I told the police officer, look, you know, uh, the, the kid don't understand. You have to investigate him with his parents, one, two, you know, the kid don't understand what you tell him in Hebrew. You have to ensure that this kid will understand what you are talking to him about. So the police officer was telling me, this is a Jewish state and he have to understand Hebrew. This is the reality that you see after this law that, you know, even the police officer in the street start to adopt the language. This is Jewish state. The Hebrew is, is the only official language in this country. And you have to adapt yourself to the when 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 you talk in the court, in the parliament or even in, in the, the street, street with police officer. I'm talking with Jafar Farah. He's founder and director of the Mosawa Center. It's an advocacy center for Arab citizens in Israel. And Nabila Espanioli is the founder and director of the Tufula Center. It is a women's center in Nazareth. Does the basic law do some particular things to women that the rest of the community doesn't face? Of course, Palestinian women inside Israel, citizens of Israel, are actually discriminated against in three circles. First, 
partly as uh, uh, part of the Palestinian minority inside Israel. The second uh, circle is uh, we are part of the women in Israel. And in Israel, as you may know, or as the audience may know, the equality for women is not actually equality as a whole, is not a concept in the Israeli laws. There is no equality basis for any woman. And thirdly, we we are struggling against the conservative powers inside our own community. So the three circles of discrimination impacting the life of the, the woman. And as part of the Palestinian national minority inside Israel, I always say we are in the 10th priority after the Ishkenazi men, Ishkenazi women, Sephardi men, Sephardi women, uh, Russian men, Russian women, Ethiopian men, Ethiopian women, and only then the Palestinian men, Palestinian women comes to the priority inside the state. So the laws are impacting our life, our daily life, our right to be, right to be heard, right to participate, right to have uh, our, our human rights as women, and our ability to survive. One of the things that we are suffering from is poverty because many of the women in the Palestinian women are not able to participate in the working field. And when you think about Jewish uh, settlements and the unique uh, status of the Jewish settlements, that will mean also in the budget uh, uh, and development budget, that will mean that there is no industrialization for the Palestinian women and no ability to be integrated in the job market. That will mean that the the, uh, Palestinian women inside Israel will continue to suffer from the lack of transportation from their villages to the working place. And in this way, actually, are the obstacles for them to participate in the job market. I mean, 90% of the Palestinian women used to be worker in their fields. After the confiscation of the land, we have to shift our position. And today, we are only 26 27% of the Palestinian women inside Israel are able to work in the job market. So the law will impact the infrastructure for us as women and will uh, influence our life and our children's life. I want to go back to um, what you were saying about where you can live in Israel. Is it True. I mean, can you live anywhere you want in Israel before the basic law? Could you go anywhere and go to a place and and live there? No, no. Actually, this is very unique uh, case, Israel. Because in usual democracies, the land uh, property is owned privately. In the case of Israel, 93% of the land have been confiscated from the Arab community and the the Israeli land administration, which is the governmental authority, control this land. Uh, as part of running uh, the council of this land administration, they included also the JNF. The JNF is the Jewish National Fund. You know, practically they were supposed to own 13% of the lands in Israel. But they are part, half, almost half of the council of the take decisions about the land allocation. What does this mean? If you go and buy a house in a building that the land is JNF land, the Jewish National Fund land, they will not allow you to, to, to buy this house. So as a result of our appeals to the Supreme Court in the past, what they used to do as a result of the court decisions to switch lands between the JNF and the land administration to enable the Arab community, the Arab citizen, to buy a house. Imagine that you go, you sign a contract with the owner of a house, and then you discover that the land that this whole building was built on, it's a JNF land, and you can't go as an Arab. So as a result of the court decisions in the past, they used to switch lands. Now they don't need to switch lands. It's legal to discriminate. 
we had challenged uh, the Supreme Court in the past to go with a family called Qa'dan family. These guys wanted to live in a nearby city called Harish. It's near Emil Fahim. You know, for most people, uh, you know, like, but as anybody that would like to move and to live in a new location, they decided to move and to live in Harish. Harish was allocated only to Jewish citizens. So we needed to appeal to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, you can't discriminate in housing. You should allow this family to get the ability to live in this place. So it took years. But like practically... We challenged the practice of the government. Today, with this law, you can't challenge. This is a basic law. This is constitutional law. So they can't do that. I will give you an, another example. There is like a tribe called Milhiran, a village in the north. You know, if you drive from Beersheba to Elat, four, five hours drive, it's almost empty. It's the desert where the Bedouin community is the majority of the community. So they, this tribe have been moved by the government several times. They were located in a, in a place called Umm al-Hiran. The government decided to build a new Jewish settlement nearby called Hiran. And they asked this tribe to be evacuated totally from their location. So imagine that you will come to any community here in the U.S. and will tell the community, hey, guys, move out. You are black Americans or you are Latin Americans. Move out. We want to locate here white Americans. This is already today illegal. This is a practice that is taking place in a country that don't have equality. There is no equality in any basic law in Israel. So that's mean when you go to the court always, you have to convince the court that you deal with civil right and the court have to try to understand how equality, try to make analysis, how the human dignity, there is a basic law called human dignity law, how human dignity can be used to say you can't discriminate. In Israel today, with this law, human dignity law is very very limited how you can use it in housing, but also uh, when it comes to employment. You go to the court and you say there is discrimination in employment. In the past, it was easy to convince the court. Today, it's legal to uh, give priority to Jewish employees and not only in Israel. Actually, this law say that the Israel as a state have obligation toward Jews all over, include Jewish Americans. And from my tax money, I have to subsidize the state investments and actions to help and to support Jewish Americans, for example. I'm talking with Jafar Farah. He's founder and director of the Mosawa Center. It's an advocacy center for Arab citizens in Israel and Nabila Espanioli. She's founder and director of Al Tafula. It's a women's center in Nazareth, and she's written and edited several books and articles on social and political issues affecting women. In a few minutes, we're going to talk with a supporter of Israel's nation-state law. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In July, Israel passed its controversial new nation-state law. I'm talking with Jafar Farah. He's founder and director of the Mosawa Center. It's an advocacy center for Arab citizens in Israel and Nabila Espanioli. She's founder and director of Al-Tafula. I was reading that the new nation-state law had um, tentacles that kind of reach into the West Bank and that you can yes. do, you, have, you can, uh, the courts can now adjudicate things in the West Bank or they do adjudicate things. How, does, how did it change what happened there? Actually, there is three principles that the law uh, put as, as a, the, the first, uh, in the first paragraph of the law. One, uh, one of that, that uh, uh, principle is that the land of Israel, the land of Israel, not the state of Israel, the land of Israel is the homeland for the Jewish people. The historical land. The historical, the exactly. historical Palestine, the historical land of Israel that is all is. Palestine, all uh, uh, Israel and West Bank, is the historical homeland of the of the uh, uh, Jews, and that self determination is a unique right for the Jews in inside Israel, and besides and all Jerusalem. the other. And all Jerusalem is the capital of Israel forever. So you're saying it's like an annexation project. It is. And the annexation has been, the law of annexation has been uh, for Jerusalem. But now we're speaking about the land of Israel. So it is a, a development of infrastructure for a future which has nothing to do with with. Two-state solution was had nothing to do with self-determination for the Palestinian. All the talk around the uh, two-state solution with this law would be in danger. This law put this uh, basis for eliminating the Palestinian rights for self-determination beside the state of Israel. And it puts also the settlement, which normally in the peace talks we're speaking about three issues that are obstacles for the peace talk. It's Jerusalem. And the talk was about Jerusalem as the capital of the two states. So that should be divided when the East Jerusalem is capital of Palestine and West Jerusalem is capital of Israel. Now, according to the law, Jerusalem united forever. It is the capital of the state of Israel. The, secondly, the settlement, the commitment of the state of Israel for Jewish settlement. It's again, when we're speaking about the Palestinian inside Israel, which uh, when we, we grow from 150,000 that were able to stay in 1948 to a million and a half today. But during these 70 years, not even one village was newly established for Palestinian inside Israel. We have to live in our own villages that were able to, to stay in 1948. So the whole process, the legitimization that this law gives is very dangerous, not only for the Palestinian inside Israel, but for the peace process and for the possibilities of living together. It seems like uh, the law is something that um, a lot of people think are, is going to be challenged and that it could run up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court could change things. It's not going to come from the Knesset probably. The, the, the polls say that 58 percent of Jewish people support the basic law. They're enthusiastic about it. Um, so can the Supreme Court change elements of this and make it better? Look, there is uh, seven appeals in front of the Supreme Court in Israel. The hearing uh, is planned for uh, to January 18th. So uh, already the Minister uh, of Justice already threatened the Supreme Court uh, not to interfere. Uh, you have to take in consideration that this is a basic law that was supported with 62 members of the Knesset. 
55 were against this law. You know, in my eyes, there are judges in the Supreme Court who really need to be very brave. But uh, as part of the seven appeals, there is one uh, appeal that is coming from Jewish Mizrahi community. As you probably know, the immigration to Israel from different Jewish communities, one big group, almost half of the Jewish population immigrated from the Arab countries. And one of the appeals came from the Mizrahi community, immigrants that came from the Arab countries, especially on the part of the law that uh, downgrade the status of the Arabic language. These guys said, you know, this is the language of our mother tongue. We came from these uh, from Arab countries. This is our language. It was we immigrated from these countries and the Arabic language is our language. So this is one challenge, you know, because in any law and basic law, you need the regulations for the implementation. And there is still no no regulations. Maybe the court will try to make it more soft in sense of the regulations. But in principle, this is an apartheid law. This is like for once uh, the settlers organizations in the West Bank and occupied territories, they are putting in front of the state, they, you know, not only the separation and the apartheid in the West Bank, but they take it also inside the green line and the separation policies is coming inside Israel, and that's something that I'm not sure that the court, the Supreme Court, will be able to challenge, but at least the debate around it will be a challenging debate. That's why, actually, we are not stopping by the Supreme Court. Our struggle against this law is goes in, the, in different levels, and one of this, this level is to understand the intersectionality between what's happening here and what's happening in, in, in our country. That's why we're here. We're here to say that it is important what is happening in the political scene inside the U.S will will influence our situation. Progressive voices within the Jewish community here, within the Palestinian community, within the American community is very, very important for our struggle within Israel. And we are asking for all progressive a voice to hear our voice and to uh, support us in this struggle for our for equality and for minority rights, which are basic values in a democratic system. That's why it is for for us essential to bring this voice around here and to to make the discussion more aware of these implications and the implication and the intersectionality between the issues. Jafar, I know the Musawa Center has a office in Washington, D.C. Do you see a new dialogue going on around this kind of thing? Do, do you think that there is yeah. a different conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, we, we see, you know, uh, we had good impressions from what's happening around in D.C. and, of course, in other places. We met uh, with uh, senators and members of Congress and staffers of almost 30, 35 uh, members of both houses. The letter that have been uh, on the issue of children... Uh, Detention. Detention is important letter that have been signed almost by 40 uh, members. Uh, also, the letter that have been uh, yesterday or two days ago uh, have been submitted uh, and published. Uh, also, 100 members of the House uh, supported the letter against uh, the honor, cutting the budgets from the UNRWA. Uh, we see also on the ground a lot of activism, and this activism is coming not only from the Arab Americans. I think, you know, uh, especially when we talk about also convicting a police officer that killed the African-American citizen, uh, we share uh, police violence. We have also in our case police violence. So in this sense, we share, we see that like African-American communities that share the same uh, experience. Uh, 
the, the same uh, challenges that we share as, uh, as a Palestinian minority inside Israel. For example, the whole issue of uh, racial profiling in the airports and banning Muslim uh, refugees from coming in the airports. Uh, we saw senators and members of the Congress that were in Dallas airport, for example, welcoming uh, the flights that came in. So in this sense, we see, you know, as, as, as a result also of, uh, of the discourse that is coming out from the White House, We see that more and more people, brave people in the U.S. coming out and say, you know, like, it's not on our behalf. And, you know, the American people are invested in the Middle East, invested in Israel with at least $3 billion every year in American uh, aid money. You know, like, this is big money that is invested in military issues inside Israel. So in this sense... American people will feel and should be held also somehow responsible to the future of the region. I think the fact that there is more and more activism in the Arab American, in the progressive Jewish American voices, the fact that the ADL, for example, like which is like center-right wing organization, finally stand against uh, uh, this law, it's something that is fresh, is new, and we should hold people here responsible, and we should find how we all can prevent the escalation of uh, violating minority rights in Israel. And and you see that there is also minority rights violation here in the U.S. And that's uh, something that we think progressive voices in the U.S. and in Israel and Palestine should uh, uh, work together and make some kind of uh, joint strategy to bring better voices around the decision-making institutions. Jafar Farah is founder and director of the Mosawa Center. It's an advocacy center for Arab citizens in Israel. And Nabila Espanioli is the founder and director of Al-Tufula, and it is a women's center in Nazareth. Thank you both for joining me and talking about the new nation-state law in Israel. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from a supporter of Israel's nation-state law. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we were talking with Palestinian citizens of Israel who object to Israel's nation-state law passed earlier this summer. Now let's talk with a supporter. Eugene Kontorovich is a professor of law at Anton Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. He is a citizen of Israel and the United States. Thanks for joining us, Eugene. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, why did Israel need a nation-state law? Lots of countries, lots of European democracies have constitutional provisions which reflect their collective national aspirations, either official religions, an official church, which Israel doesn't have, or monarchies, or which Israel does not have, or in the case of many European countries, a provision saying that they are the represent the national self-determined aspirations of a particular country. European countries have this. Uh, the Palestinian Authority has this. 
Uh, and Israel is fairly unusual, in a sense, in not having such uh, provision, in not having any law dealing with the official language. And finally, after 70 years of not having such a constitutional provision, uh, Israel decided it was time. And I think uh, in particular because the notion that Israel is indeed the state of the Jewish people, the state where the Jewish people get to exercise their self-determination alongside other peoples in the world, has not yet been fully accepted 70 years after the creation of the state. Is one of the provisions that you would think would be included in a nation-state law would be equality for all its citizens. And a lot of people were disappointed that the nation-state law doesn't call for equality for all its citizens. Is that a problem? It would have looked better. It would have passed by a bigger majority than a lot of opposition in the Knesset didn't uh, vote for it. Should it have included equality? It's not a problem because Israel's constitutional law already includes constitutional guarantees of equal rights for all citizens. So Israel's constitution is very weird. It is not like the American constitution or many other constitutions that are passed all at once. There is no single Israeli constitutional text. Rather, laws dealing with different particular subjects are passed sort of whenever the Knesset gets around to it. And in this case, human rights laws and laws that have been uh, understood to protect equality have already been passed. In 1994, the Knesset passed a big human rights law, uh, which has been held by the Supreme Court to uh, guarantee equal rights for all citizens. And now, only uh, more than a decade later, are they getting around to the other side, the Jewish character of the state. But the basic law on human dignity and liberty, it never uses the word equality and that means it, it's not there, right? It's, it just talks about um, violations uh, well, you, you, of body and you, dignity. You, you should tell the Israeli Supreme Court that the basic law human dignity has been interpreted by the Supreme Court as a blank check for incorporating human rights rules into Israeli constitutional law. Just like the U.S. Constitution does not use the word abortion, but I think many uh, people would certainly say it protects abortion, the Israeli Constitution barely uses any words. Rather, it delegates broad power to the Supreme Court to provide for constitutional protections, and the Supreme Court has struck down fundamental legislation of the government, very important laws uh, dealing with conscription and other matters as violating equality as recently as a year ago. Indeed, one of the legal challenges to the law brought by one of the uh, very left-wing parties claims that the constitutional amendment, the basic law, is unconstitutional because it violates the constitutional protection of equality. And that is a strong acknowledgement that there is indeed a constitutional protection of equality. I was noticing that the original uh, Knesset member who introduced the nation-state bill was Avi Dichter. And when the final version of the bill was passed, he said, we're enshrining this important bill into law today to prevent even the slightest thought, let alone attempt, to transform Israel to a country of all its citizens. Doesn't that mean that the intent of the guy who introduced the bill was to be exclusionary? Uh, no, because you really have to understand what country of all its citizens means. Interestingly, Dichter introduced this when he was a member of the center-left Kadima party. The bill was supported by many labor, that are the main left-wing party, and centrist uh, and center-left uh, politicians. And it was really only when uh, the Likud, the right-wing party, began to support it that they dropped their support. So this was originally a left-wing bill in a much stronger version. A state of all its citizens is a euphemism for the elimination of the right of Jewish self-determination, eliminating any particularistically Jewish features, such as a national anthem, an official language, 
that reflect the majority Jewish character of the state and which countries around the world, European democracies almost uh, ubiquitously have official languages, provisions reflecting their official character. But without any such provision, the Supreme Court could well say there is nothing in the law saying that this country has any Jewish character. Uh, and thus all of these measures would be potentially unconstitutional under the very aggressive uh, interpretive style of the Supreme Court. So it was really to head off any kind of changes in the status quo. The law is not supposed to change the status quo in any way in this regard. Indeed, the provisions regarding Arabic, which people have wrongly described as demoting Arabic, specifically as an official language, specifically say that they preserve the status quo of Arabic. And I think that's the, the main point of the law, is to preserve the status quo from any potential uh, undermining. I'm talking with Eugene Konarovich, professor of law at the Anton Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. We're talking about Israel's nation-state law. It passed earlier this summer and is going up for an appeal in January. I wonder if we could dwell on the official language issue again, because it sounds you know, like the official language is Hebrew. And we were just hearing from Palestinian citizens of Israel who felt like they had fought long and hard just to get some street signs that are in Arabic. They feel like that police officers and officials, if they don't feel a need to um, learn Arabic or you know use Arabic, that it's going to be a detriment to uh, people who don't speak Hebrew very well. Why not you know make them equal and try to uh, go at it and and get documents and have all the rest? I would say, why apply this extraordinary double standard to the world's only Jewish state? Having two top-level official languages, that is to say, as opposed to an official national language and then some local official languages, is extraordinarily unusual in European democracies that have significant national minorities. The Baltic states, where the Russian minority population far exceeds that of the Arab population in Israel and some of the countries, uh, they have one exclusive language. Hungary, Romania, countries with large, significant minority populations all have one official language. This notion that you have to have two official languages, Canada-style, if you have an ethnic minority, is basically uh, very rare around the world. And there are street signs in Arabic, and it's good for police officers to learn Arabic. And none of that is undermined by the law. Indeed, the law locks in and guarantees for the first time in Israeli law the current protected status of Arabic. Israel is the only country in the world where there is a majority-speaking Hebrew population. To not have Hebrew as the official language of the country is essentially to treat the Jews of the world as somehow inferior to other peoples who do get to have a country where their language is the official language. All right. Wouldn't it make sense uh, for Israel, though, to uh, have Arabic as an official language? Because it's in the neighborhood of all these other countries. I mean, a really, if you want to have good relations with all the countries around you, they all speak Arabic. Why not have more promotion of that? Diplomatic relations with your neighbors does not require having their language as your official language. That would be like telling Estonia that they should make Russian their official language because they have this big Russian neighbor. Uh, that's not how countries make official language decisions. America does not make Spanish an official language because Mexico is on its southern border. Certainly learning Arabic and teaching Arabic in schools, which is becoming more and more popular, is very important, and the law does not interfere with that. I'll, say something, I'll tell you something remarkable. Since this law was passed in the summer, Israel's relations, at least open relations, are with its Arab neighbors, have blossomed. Israeli government ministers, uh, prime ministers are flying to Oman, 
to our, the uh, Gulf Emir- Emirate states in ways which uh, were just incomprehensible a year ago. They're open public official visits. Israel has just uh, opened diplomatic relations with uh, Chad, an Islamic state, and is uh, opening, beginning discussing uh, relations with Sudan, a member of the Arab League. None of this took place uh, a year ago. So the notion this is somehow setting back Israel's relations in the neighborhood is unheard of. And all Israel's neighbors have Arabic as their one official language. The constitution of the state of Palestine says Arabic is the official language. Palestine is an Arab country. Uh, part of the Arab people, and Islam is the official religion. So to say that Israel has to somehow appeal to members of its neighborhood, but at the same time not be treated uh, with the rights that the neighboring states have to have their own official language, is, I think, uh, discriminatory. Uh, Let's move on and talk about one of the other issues that is controversial in Israel's nation, state law. It has to do with basically what in the old days used to be called final status issues. In the nation-state law, Jerusalem is a whole Jerusalem. It seems to preclude any east or west Jerusalem as capitals for uh, a Palestinian state. It also talks about uh, Jewish settlement without specifying where as a national value and encourages settlement efforts. Is that going too far? So nothing in this law has anything to do directly with diplomatic controversies with the Palestinians. The status of Jerusalem, the United City of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, has been cemented in earlier basic laws. This is not a political question in Israel. Uh, Existing legislation already established that. Uh, And indeed, after the United States recognized the United City of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, Israel could hardly do less. Uh, the provisions about encouraging Jews to uh, move throughout the country, actually all of the provisions of the law, apply within the uh, sovereign borders of Israel. They do not have any direct application outside the sovereign borders of Israel, like any other piece of Knesset legislation. The only indirect way in which this has to do with uh, negotiations with the Palestinians is one of the main arguments why Israel should make a potentially very dangerous and uh, far-reaching concessions, territorial concessions to the Palestinians to expel many, many tens of thousands of Jews from their homes is so that Israel could have a demographic majority within its borders in order to have a Jewish state. And that's one of the things uh, people often say to Israel, to have a Jewish state, President Obama would say this, we need to give up land and kick out Jews from their homes in order to maintain a Jewish state within smaller borders. But if you're not allowed to say that we're having a Jewish state, It makes one skeptical of whether, if Israel were to make these far-reaching and very painful concessions, whether the international community would then actually be okay with Israel saying it's a Jewish state. If being a Jewish state only means the ability to kick Jews out of their homes in uh, their historic heartland and not have Hebrew as an official language and not have Jerusalem as the capital, that's a very uh, meager uh, and unhappy notion of what being a Jewish state means. Is being a Jewish state an expansionary thing? Uh, It really has absolutely nothing to do with territory. The notion of the Jewish state is that this is the country where Jewish people have their right to self-determination. And I should add, many, many people uh, support the notion of a Palestinian state, no doubt many listeners of this program. The Palestinian constitution defines itself as being the state of the Palestinian people with Jerusalem as its capital. And nobody thinks that's expansionist or undermining peace. Uh, So it's hard to understand why Israel saying the same thing would be any different. The Palestinian citizens of Israel I was talking with 
felt strongly that they were not able to live anywhere they wanted within Israel and that this basic law kind of hammered that home and made that an official part, a constitutional thing. Do Palestinian citizens of Israel get to live wherever they want? Israeli Arabs uh, do have a right to live wherever they want. There is uh, a wrinkle, but it's not the wrinkle. It's the opposite of what uh, your previous guests were saying. A Supreme Court case uh, decided in the prior decade held that uh, Arabs had an absolute right to buy land in Jewish towns, even land that had been purchased by the Jewish agency for Jewish settlement, and that town councils could not in any way restrict the purchase of homes in majority Jewish towns by Arabs. A subsequent case, several years later, involved the opposite situation, in which a Jew was attempting to buy a house in a majority Bedouin town. And there, the Bedouins would not uh, let him buy the house. And the Supreme Court said, that's okay, the Bedouins are allowed to forbid Jews from moving into their towns, but not vice versa. So there is a fundamental inequality, which uh, earlier versions of the uh, basic law sought to address, which ultimately is not addressed in the final version. But that equality runs exactly the opposite direction from what your earlier guests had described. So um, kibbutzim, uh, like uh, a Palestinian citizen of Israel can move into a kibbutzim or you know wherever they want. There's no restrictions based on ethnicity. So a kibbutz is kind of like a communal, agricultural, socialist commune. So you have to agree to lots of things when you join a kibbutz, like not having your own property and many other restrictions. There's religious communities where you have to agree to abide by religious law. Uh, but those are not ethnic distinctions. And I can tell you there are towns, Arab-majority towns or exclusively Arab towns, where in practice it would be very tough for a Jew to move into uh, from, a, let's say, a security or social integration point of view. And no doubt some Arabs would prefer not to live in a majority Jewish town. Uh, and there are Arab towns in Israel, like Pekin or Malfachim, where even if a Jew you know, shows up, uh, there can be unpleasant incidents. And certainly it would be, uh, in practice, inconceivable to think of Jews living there uh, openly. Uh, but that's not a matter of legal rights, but more of a social situation. And there's some of that going both ways, but none of it really is about has the force of law. I wonder if you think that the Israeli nation state law drove a wedge between uh, Jews in the diaspora and Israel. I noticed that uh, Natalie Portman, the actress, said recently that it was racist and a mistake, and she doesn't go and accept awards in Israel now. Is this more of the distancing that might be happening because as Israel uh, asserts itself as a Jewish nation state? The notion of Israel as a Jewish nation state is a proposition that has been advanced by secular, uh, liberal, left-wing Zionists since Ben-Gurion. There's nothing new or exceptional here. If American Jews have in any way been distanced because of this law, or it's been a wedge, it's because there's been a concerted effort to mischaracterize the law and use it as a wedge because uh, there are many who would like to see American Jews distanced from Israel. Natalie Portman is not a representative of American Jews. She, I think, would probably be more fairly a description of Hollywood uh, entertainment people. And I think uh, the average view of the Hollywood entertainment person is not necessarily the average view of an American Jew. Uh, the law is very short. It's 11 paragraphs. Uh, I would encourage anyone who thinks there's something racist in there to read it, maybe alongside some other European constitutions. If American Jews read articles in the newspaper whose headline is Israel passes law called racist, uh, that may well concern them. 
and I think that that's the purpose of uh, such descriptions of the war. But if they were to see that this war is really uh, essentially a symbolic declaratory uh, measure which does not affect anyone's individual rights in any way, does not give rights, does not take away rights, does not create dual classes of citizens, uh, then they would be uh, much more receptive. I wanted to ask you a question about what's been happening with Airbnb and settlements in the occupied territories. Airbnb has decided not to list places in the occupied territories, people who want to rent. And I noticed that the uh, state of Illinois uh, is looking at this and saying that the governor wants to pressure Airbnb into reversing its ban on lodging in the West Bank. What do you make of what's happening here? Airbnb's decision is clearly discriminatory and anti-Semitic in nature. It offers listings around the world, in the most brutal regimes, in the world's worst conflict zones, in areas where people have been dispossessed, kicked out of their homes, and then say, we don't get involved in politics, we list private people's homes. But with regards to Israel, they announced what they called a global policy on disputed territories. That if there's a territorial dispute and there's questions of territorial sovereignty or property disputes, there they won't allow listings. But it turns out that that global policy only applies to Jews living in the West Bank. So Moroccan-occupied Western Sahara, tons of listings. Turkish-occupied Northern Cyprus, tons of listings. Occupied Abkhazia, tons of listings. Nagorno-Karabakh, listings. Tibet, listings. You can have a house in Gaza that's used as a Hamas rocket base. You can list that. So, first of all, there's a double standard that they say they have a policy on disputed territories, but they only really consider one territory disputed enough. Then within the disputed territory of the West Bank, which is what they identify as the disputed territory, they don't say that, you know, they say there's a territorial dispute, so we don't want to list there. We don't want to be involved. But it turns out they're actually not delisting homes in the West Bank. They're delisting only the Jewish homes in the West Bank. So even within the West Bank, there is a clear double standard. You could have a Jewish home and an Arab home 100 meters away. Now, in the Palestinian towns and territories under the control of the Palestinian Authority, actually throughout the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority has the death penalty for Palestinians who sell land to Jews. As a matter of fact, they've just imprisoned an American citizen uh, Arab-American citizens, for selling land to Jews. Last week, an Israeli Arab was killed for his uh, suspected sale of land to Jews. So this entire system, apartheid system of banning Jews from purchasing homes at all in the West Bank that the Palestinian Authority enforces, that does not result in uh, Airbnb saying, we're not going to do business here, uh, this is racist, we're delisting it. But in majority Jewish towns in the West Bank, where there are indeed uh, in some of them Arabs living, their Airbnb, the only place in the world, they said, we are closed to business, we are delisting you. And that's quite extraordinary and it's quite discriminatory. Well, well isn't it, it, have a law. Isn't it um, yeah. obvious that uh, most of the world sees the settlements as illegal? And, you know, if you're trying to stay on the good side of the whole world, uh, that you would not do business with illegal settlements that are promoted um, by the state of Israel in a place where uh, they shouldn't be by international law, by uh, all these other countries. There's a consensus on this. Of course, you don't want to you don't want to list those. So nothing in international law forbids a company, regardless of the legal status of the settlements, and I would argue that they're not illegal, but nothing in international law prohibits a company 
from doing business with people who live in an occupied territory, whether they're settlers or not. And Airbnb concedes this. And if Airbnb thought there was a problem with doing business with illegal settlements, they wouldn't be listing illegal settlements in Western Sahara, Northern Cyprus, and so forth. So they don't actually think there's an international legal problem. Otherwise, they're in deep international legal trouble. So it seems the problem is much more to do with the identity of the settlers. And the illegal arguments about settlements, which are quite obscure and complicated, are really about Israel's actions in uh, allowing these communities to exist. Uh, you know, I think it's quite an extreme view that is not widely held, that the settlers themselves are somehow illegal or their houses are illegal. That's not the view of the United States. So, you know, they might adopt some obscure reading of international law, but that is being done in a clearly discriminatory way. Because, you know, what is law? It's a system of rules. International law is applied internationally. And if they take an approach of international law with, in relation just to Jews, that's not international and that's not law. That's something else. What can the Illinois state do about this under its current uh, policies and laws? Uh, it has an anti-BDS legislation. Um, it could ban investment in Airbnb. That's about the size of it? The current Illinois law, like laws in many states relates to boycotts aimed basically at Jews in the state of Israel as discriminatory. And they say they're not illegal. Airbnb is free to do whatever it wants. But because we regard this as a form of invidious discrimination, we don't want to be supporting or subsidizing this. So uh, the law, as it's currently being applied by the state of Illinois, will prevent Illinois from investing its pension funds in Airbnb. Uh, Airbnb is not currently publicly traded, but it is scheduled or planning to have an IPO in the spring, at which point Illinois will not be on the purchasing end of that IPO. Eugene Konarovich is a professor of law at the Anton Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. Thanks a lot for talking about Airbnb and the Israel nation state law. Thank you so much, Jerome. Good to be back. The 1% did pretty well this year, $111 billion in tax cuts. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the year in inequality. Jeffrey Winters from Northwestern University joins me to talk about the year in inequality, and we'll think through how inequality is affecting our society. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.